the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you hearing the show for the first time, the show is in two parts, not equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning, elder law. Um, The idea behind estate planning is to try to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes. We need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show... We talk about, you know, politics, history, nostalgia, charitable giving. So today we're going to hit a little bit on nostalgia and history. We're going to be talking about Brooklyn with Thomas Campanella, who's an expert on on the history of Brooklyn. And I learned more than a few things doing the interview, uh, you know, about the history of Brooklyn. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, remember, we had Dennis Prager on and we we told him, and and it's true, that if you're from Brooklyn, you get priority to go on our show. And, you know, so and and a couple of weeks before, and I've gotten a few, you know, I've gotten more comments probably about Carl Erskine than any one of our interviews over the last year or so. I mean, it seems everybody who remembers Carl Erskine loves him. Apparently, you know, I've seen letters from other people and Carl Erskine wrote letters. And he he, obviously he sounded like a very nice guy on on the radio show. But over the years, he hasn't changed much. He hasn't mellowed just because of his age. He was a nice guy 50 years ago. And it's it's evident in some of the letters that he would write the the Brooklyn Dodger fans. So and and Carl Erskine, for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, he was a pitcher for the Dodgers for about 10 years, the Brooklyn Dodgers for about 10 years, and he pitched in L.A. two years. And if you're driving down the Bell Parkway and you see Erskine Street, that's named for Carl Erskine. Great guy, Brooklyn Dodger, for 10 years, Los Angeles Dodger for two years. It's the only organization he ever played for. And as he said, he was the only guy who got two signing bonuses out of Branch Rickey which Dizzy Dean says that that's enough to get you into the Hall of Fame. So we're going to be talking to Thomas Campanella about Brooklyn. And then we're going to be talking about the one charity that's probably named more of our wills than any other charity, and that's St. Jude's, St. Jude's Research Hospital. We're talking to two people from St. Jude's and talk about the work they did and how it was started by Danny Thomas, I don't know, 50 or 60 years ago. So we're going to be talking about St. Jude's. In the meanwhile, let's do some estate planning work here. By the way, I'm accompanied today again by Michael. Hello, everyone. My son, my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And one of our attorneys, Nick. Hello. All right. So, Michael, what's our question? All right. This question is from Vlad in Staten Island. Um, Dear Mr. Connors, I have two homes, one in New York and one in Pennsylvania. How would you recommend I allocate assets into an irrevocable trust to pay the bills for both? 
Okay, well, again, that's more of a personal decision than a legal decision. But at the same time, uh, in a lot of cases, some of the reasons you put cash into an irrevocable trust to take care of the houses. Let's, I'm going to make an example up, but let's say we have three children here. You have one children as your trustee. They're going to need some money to pay the real estate taxes in those properties until they can sell them, assuming you want to sold. And they have to pay the insurance, and they have to have money for an emergency repair or things like that. So usually in most cases, we like to set up some money as a fund to reasonably upkeep the, the two properties for six months to a year and take into fact maybe you're going to have an emergency, maybe the boiler is going to break down, maybe you're going to need to put some money in the boiler, maybe the roof's going to leak, maybe a tree's going to fall on the house, insurance doesn't cover all of it. So we, we want to set up a reserve fund, and that we talk about also depends upon your net worth. Somebody who's got $500,000 in liquid assets, maybe we put a couple hundred thousand in the trust. Somebody, on the other hand, who has less than 100,000 of assets, maybe we put twenty or $30,000 in the trust. That's a personal decision we talk about. And, you know, that's one of the things when we're talking about estate planning and elder law, there's not not a right answer. You got to talk it over. And that's why if, if you call our office, we offer a, a free initial consultation to talk it over to figure out what you want to do. There's no one right answer on everything down the line. Yes, if you own real estate in New York and Pennsylvania, you certainly want to do a trust because you don't want to go through a probate proceeding in Pennsylvania, you know, where you, you may have to pay some more taxes than you otherwise would have to pay and pay for a Pennsylvania lawyer to probate your will. And obviously, you don't want to go to probate in New York. So if you own real estate in New York and Pennsylvania, we do want to avoid probate in those two states. We don't want to pay for two different proceedings in two different states. You want to avoid probate. Believe me, it's the cheapest way to go. And ordinarily, we can get the house out tax-free if it's in a trust. And again, if you want to Give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. You're more than welcome to do it at 718-238-6500. Nick, do we have a, another question we can get in quickly? Yes, we actually have a really good uh, legal question from Alex. Alex says, hi, Mr. Connors. Could you please explain spousal refusal? Okay. Spousal refusal is one of the hardest things to explain in a couple of minutes. Basically, let's say you want to apply for Medicaid, medical assistance to pay for a nursing home bill or for home care. Let's say we got a husband and wife. Husband has a stroke, has to go to a nursing home. Under New York State law, if husband can transfer virtually all of his assets to his wife's name, before the end of, let's say, this month, the first day of the month following the transfer, the husband can apply for medical assistance, Medicaid, to pay for his nursing home bill. And you might say, what if the husband's not mentally competent? Well, that's why, you know, a lot of times you hear us talk about doing a power of attorney and how important it is to do a power of attorney, a durable power of attorney. But all right, let's say the, the PAV attorney's in place, husband has a stroke, wife transfers all the assets to the wife's name. The first day of the month following the transfer, wife applies for Medicaid on behalf of her husband. She signs a spousal refusal. What does that mean? A spousal refusal means I refuse to contribute assets to support my spouse's care. It sounds a little harsh, but it's really a form that the city gives you in order that you can apply for, for Medicaid. Now, if somebody has millions of dollars of assets, or in some cases even five, $600,000 worth of liquid assets, the city may sue for support. If you live in the county, the county may say sue for support. If you live outside of New York City, the county's more likely to sue than the city. Who gets sued? It's a mystery to me. There, there's no rhyme or reason. It depends who falls through the cracks, who doesn't fall through the cracks. But no matter what, you're paying pennies on the dollar. And if you want to, after you get your spouse on Medicaid, you can protect your assets through an irrevocable trust. So even if the city does sue you for support, they can collect virtually nothing, if, if anything at all. You may want to give them a nuisance settlement just to get rid of them. But husband transfers everything to wife. Wife signs spouse refusal. Husband gets Medicaid. And no matter what happens, if you got a $15,000 a month nursing home bill, the wife is much better off. Even if the city sues for support, you can delay it a long time, maybe till the wife is gone. And if you pay pennies on the dollar... 
that's a lot. So spouse refusal is a way, you know, in the past, people sometimes would say we're going to get divorced. Uh, A wife would divorce her husband in that case. Spouse refusal, you don't have to get divorced. You can separate your assets. Husband comply for Medicaid. His wife's assets are not considered in his application for Medicaid. So it's not as easy as just said, but that's why if you want to come in and talk it over, you got a spouse in a nursing home, give us a call at Connors and Sullivan. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors and Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. From our family to yours, I wish you a happy and healthy new year. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, in our office here, we do a a lot of charitable bequests. And I have to say, one of the most popular charities that people are looking for in their will is St. Jude's. And we have two people from St. Jude's, Kara McAllister, regional Director Bequest East Coast, and Laura Wallenstein, Regional Executive Director for St. Jude's. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much. Somebody want to tell me the history of St. Jude's? I think a a lot of our older listeners know, but maybe some of our younger listeners don't know. I'll let Laura handle that since she's been (laughs) St. Jude's for so long. (laughs) Well, you know, the the amazing thing about St. Jude and what really makes it remarkable is that we have been, um, the, the hospital has been around for over 50 years, um, but St. Jude really began, um, at the heart of the community. It was Danny Thomas, a well-known actor of the time. Um, they remember Big Room for Daddy, one of the favorite shows of that era. Danny um, had made a promise when he was first starting out in his career um, to the to St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes. He was really struggling, wanting to make it as an entertainer, but just really having a um, difficult time making ends meet. And his wife was actually in the hospital with their firstborn child, Marlon Thomas, um, and he was having trouble paying to get her out of the hospital. 
And so he went into a church. He was a devout Catholic, and he made um, made a, a prayer to St. Jude um, that if he would just help him find his way in life, that he would build a shrine to him, um, a, a meaningful shrine to, to give back to the, the world and the community um, in honor of St. Jude. And so sure enough, the next day he gets, I think it was a commercial, a radio commercial for a singing toothbrush um, ad, and it paid exactly what he needed um, to get um, Marlo um, and uh, his wife out of the hospital right after she was born. And so, of course, his career continued, and he went on to have this very successful television and radio and comedy career, but he never forgot his promise. And um, one of his great advisors was um, Cardinal Stretch. He was um, the um, Cardinal of the Catholic Church at the time in Memphis, and he had talked about having this vision of wanting to do something for children, um, dying of leukemia and of, you know, these deadly childhood diseases, um, that just weren't really receiving attention or treatment or research. And Cardinal Stretch really encouraged him to, to consider doing it and building this hospital, um, that he had had on his heart in Memphis, Tennessee, because he thought of it as an opportunity to help desegregate and, and really set, um, set the tone for um, inclusion and integration in the South, um, which, of course, at the time was really struggling, uh, struggling with segregation. And so that's really an incredible, incredible background about the hospital that a lot of people don't know. But he really leaned on communities across the country, asking everyone to come together and give and donate towards this vision of a hospital where children could come and be treated regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of creed, and they could just receive the treatment they needed. Um, and of course, he named it after St. Jude, um, St. Jude Thaddeus, um, the patron saint of hopeless causes. Let me ask you something now. If somebody, let's say you have a parent and they, they have a child, who do they contact? How much do they have to pay? What do they have to do? Well, they never pay anything. Um, our families never pay for transportation, housing, food, much less treatment. Um, if a patient, if, if you are a parent and you have a child that's been diagnosed um, and we um, are researching that at St. Jude, um, we are a research hospital. So the way we work is that we treat patients as well as do research on these diseases. And we're primarily focused on devastating childhood diseases. So, of course, we're best known for um, pediatric cancer, all forms of pediatric cancer, but then other things, um, blood disorders, um, things like sickle cell, um, pediatric HIV. Um, we actually just recently had a huge discovery in um, the area of bubble boy disease. We actually have discovered a cure. One of the CT researchers um, is credited with that. Um, so if you have a child who is sick and has been diagnosed, especially with pediatric cancer, the best thing to do is to work with your doctor, the doctor that was diagnosing, to make a referral to St. Jude. If you um, are a parent and you want to move forward on your own, you can actually go onto our website. We provide that information. I'm pretty nice to share with your listeners through the website later if you'd like. We have a phone number and a website but to reach out, and within 24 hours, they should be hearing back from someone um, at the hospital, from a doctor or nurse, who can help talk through the referral process. And I can actually give you that phone number, the toll-free number for a referral. It's 888-226-4343. Or family members could go to www.stjude.org. Can you repeat the phone number again for some of us who are a little slow on the uptake? <laughs> sure. Um, 
800-273-4343. Now, you know, I know there are people out there that say they, they may want to call, but they're a little afraid. They're not sure how they're going to be treated. Can, can you reassure them? Sure, sure. Um, I think one of the nice things is that, um, and I'm always amazed by this. I've worked at many, um, many a hospital, and our physicians are incredibly responsive. Somebody from their office or the physician themselves will um, contact within 24 hours, and that's pretty amazing. I mean, I know I can barely get a phone call back from my primary care physician. Um, within that time frame. I think parents should be um, totally feel comfortable calling. Um, we're used to dealing with people calling and asking lots of questions and trying to see if their child might be appropriate for one of our treatment protocols. Uh, my advice is when in doubt, just call or contact your physician about making a referral. We all hear the commercials, but how does somebody learn more about St. Jude's? How do they learn about your mission? Well, I mean, of course, they can always go on their website. Um, we have a lot of wonderful information. We also have a wonderful new resource, or a website, um, if they really want to learn just about all the different types of stories coming out of St. Jude, whether it's research or patient care um, or what we're doing around the globe, our global efforts. We actually have a, a new website called St. Jude Inspire, and it features um, really neat stories that tell, you know, perspective of a patient or a patient family coming back to the hospital maybe for the first time since treatment. Um, it may talk about what we're doing um, in countries all around the globe. It may talk about the research. You know, you heard me reference the, the cure to bubble boy disease. And so I think sometimes science and research, um, to those of us who are not necessarily science majors, can be a little intimidating. But this is a great opportunity and a great website for people to go and actually read about the work being done in the lab using layman's terms um, and really, really helping, I think, the general audience um, understand the power of um, the philanthropic support that, that really fuels our research and why it's so different at St. Jude and why we're able to accelerate um, cures and accelerate research and, and share it freely. Obviously, people can make contributions while they're alive, but I think we should probably bring up that sometimes through a will of trust, there are a lot of people in this area in New York, they're cash poor, but they're real estate rich. And I always tell them, if you want to make a gift, the, the time might be in your will when your house goes for $2 million or whatever, even though you may only have $50,000 in the bank. And that's the perfect time to make the gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we have people working all over the country who deal specifically with supporters who want to give either through their will or through another different charitable vehicle um, that has to do with their estate plans or that type of thing. Um, and our website also has lots of great information on how to make a gift through their will, how to make a gift through a charitable gift annuity, how to donate stock, um, how to donate real estate, all the different ways that people might want to benefit the organization. Um, so it's, it's pretty comprehensive. And again, where where do you, where do they get that information? They can go to www.stjude.org. Karen, Laura, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Good luck to you and your mission, and good luck to your patients. We'll pray for all of them. Thank, thank you, you thank so much. much. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Two floors above the butcher First door on the right And life filled to the brim As I stood by my window And looked out on those Brooklyn Road Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We brought in Thomas Campanella, who's got a book out, Brooklyn, the Once and Future City. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you. All right, so what's your book about? It's about Brooklyn. Okay, you said. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it started out actually with a, f- a fairly narrow uh, focus. Um, but as I got into the material, I started coming across more and more subjects that nobody knew about that had been totally forgotten, totally buried. Uh, and I just was really gripped by this passion to tell these stories, uh, to uncover these lost uh, chapters of Brooklyn's history. So much of Brooklyn's uh, past, uh, it really, that people know about, focuses on really only a portion of Brooklyn. It, it's it's the Brooklyn that's closer to Manhattan. Uh, it's uh, certain landmark places and and. Uh, and uh, infrastructure like Prospect Park or the Brooklyn Bridge or uh, uh, Coney Island, for example. But there are vast uh, parts of the borough that uh, really have completely uh, escaped um, our attention. And really, uh, I wanted to bring that to um, to people and have them appreciate this place afresh. OK, now, who are the first European settlers in Brooklyn? The first Europeans to come here were the Dutch, uh, and they came very early on. Uh, and uh, actually, the first point of contact uh, for the Dutch, uh, everyone assumes it was uh, it was downtown, what is today downtown Brooklyn. Um, it, it actually was the part of Brooklyn that we know today as Marine Park, uh, and um, and specifically a little known inlet. 
of Jamaica Bay called Garrison Creek. Uh, Garrison Creek runs, uh, it actually ran much further inland than it does today. It went all the way past uh, King's Highway originally. Uh, it terminates now at about Avenue U uh, at the so-named Marine Park. Uh, and it was a point, it was a place where um, the Dutch came uh, and uh, began making contact with the Native Americans uh, who were living there. They were living there seasonally at the time. It was not a permanent uh, encampment, but it became a permanent encampment because it basically turned into an industrial site. And the industry I'm referring to here is actually the production of wampum, the drilled shell beads uh, that really became the kind of uh, coin of the New World Trade Triangle, the, the beaver trade, the beaver pelts that were being sold back in, in Europe um, the uh, the Indian tribes in places like uh, Marine Park, what we know today as Marine Park, uh, Canarsie, Bergen Beach, uh, Barren Island, what's now uh, Floyd Bennett Field, um, these tribes became permanent dwellers in these locations once they recognized the enormous value of the wampum that they were producing. All right, so it turned the Native American economy upside down. Um, uh, but it, you know, these became the mints of the the coin of the New World uh, trade. Now, what tribes were the? the <clears throat> these were the Lenni Lenape uh, uh, Indians, um, and uh, there were various uh, uh, permutations therein. But there were the Lenni Lenape tribes, and they had been resident in this part of the 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 New World, so called. For about a, a little over a thousand years, um, it, which is about when the modern shoreline of what we know as Brooklyn today settled into place after the, the sea level changes following the glaciers, the retreat of the glaciers. Um, they are the largest Native American village that we that has ever been excavated and very poorly so because it was done by <laughs> amateurs in the in the early uh, in the late 19th century is roughly in the location of Marine Park, the west side of Marine Park, from the Marine Park Junior High School to about Avenue U. That was an enormous, it was called Shanshamakok. It was a, a, a very sizable Native American village and one of the main wampum production sites. How did the Dutch and the Native Americans, how did they get along at first? Well, <laughs> They're, they're, they got along at first because of the, uh, the, the need uh, on the part of the Dutch for wampum, right? So basically the way this trade triangle worked was the, the Dutch traded artifacts to these tribes, the Lenin Lenape. You know, they were trading them uh, beads, uh, glassware, uh, knives, guns, uh, liquor, things like that in exchange for these wampum uh, belts, right? The wampum belts were then taken up the Hudson River to about where Albany is now, right? Which I think was called Beaverwick originally in the in Dutch. They would trade the wampum belts to the native tribes, the Amer Indian tribes up there, in exchange for the beaver pelts, which the Dutch would then bring back to Europe and sell at, at great profit. That was the triangle. So it 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 worked for a while, but. It, it 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 fell apart very quickly for several reasons. First of all, there was the introduction of diseases that the um, the Indian tribes here had no little or no immunity to. Right, so so uh, smallpox and and other diseases decimated 
the Indian tribes here. So they, they, they vanish very quickly. Actually, even before the end of the 17th century, they're largely out of the picture, right? So, which is astonishing. Like, like in other words, 1700, they're not here. They're basically gone by the 1690, 1700, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then the trade triangle crumbles because of over, over hunting. You know, the, the beaver was just almost extirpated from the whole Northeast because of this, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the trade, the demand for pelts. Now, whatever happened to the Dutch settlers? Well, the Dutch uh, settled uh, throughout uh, Brooklyn. Um, there are there are early Dutch homesteads still in Brooklyn. Uh, a number of them, actually. The the Wyckoff Bennett House, which is at Avenue P and Kings Highway, a beautiful Dutch colonial uh, structure. Um, there's one in my neighborhood, the Hendrick Lot House, which uh, is one of the most historic of these buildings. Um, that is actually the 300th anniversary of the the uh, building of that structure is next year. Um, and then there's the uh, the Peter Clayson Wyckoff House in uh, off um, Utica uh, Ralph Avenue. Which is one of the oldest structures in New York State, and that's in, in these are all now landmarked and preserved. So, the Dutch uh, settled. Uh, they were agrarians, right? They had huge farms. Uh, they were also huge slave owners. Um, south Brooklyn, or, or I should say, deep South Brooklyn, Southern Brooklyn, South Brooklyn being a very different part of New York City. Um, deep South Brooklyn uh, was actually one of the had one of the highest percentages of slave ownership uh, in the whole Northeast. It was comparable, actually, to the South, to the you know south of the Mason Dixon line. Um, so they had this was a plantation economy, uh, and uh, and so, but uh, of course, gradually over time, the Dutch uh, created a, a society of their own, and then as the English came in. Uh, they mingled and and uh, you you by the end of the 19th century, you had the the elite in New York City were really the Anglo Dutch. Right. People like that. The Roosevelt's came out of or the Vanderbilt's. Um, right. They were the Anglo Dutch uh, who really held the levers of power until, um, you know, the mid 20th century. All right. Now you're talking about interesting stories. Can you give us an example? Well, uh, for example, um, the the some of the most famous thoroughbred racetracks in the world were in the area of Marine Park, Sheepshead Bay, uh, the the part of Brooklyn we know today as Homecrest, right? Uh, which is like just between Sheepshead Bay and Marine Park. The um, Sheepshead Bay racetrack was actually one. It, it may well have been the place where the the term the Big Apple was actually first used. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, there, there's actually a tiny African-American community still, there's a still, you can still see traces of it in Sheepshead Bay that's descended from the workers that, that used to uh, tend the horses and work at these, at this um, racetrack, the Sheepshead Bay racetrack, um, which then becomes after trackside gambling is outlawed in the early 20th century, it then becomes a great speedway, motor speedway. And we had some of the many of the early record breaking um, races and motor car drivers actually uh, raced on this track. Uh, the what years Bay. was this? This was in the uh, this would have been in the teens, right up up till and just around World War One. 
Uh, you had a number of the uh, most famous race car drivers in America and the world, actually, Dario uh, Resta, um, Eddie Rickenbacker, who goes on to become a, an ace pilot in World War One, had raced here. And also, it's also the place where we have some of the uh, some of the first flights, um, airplane flights uh, uh, and demonstrations of what the airplane could do in New York City it was at the Sheepshead Bay uh, Motor Speedway, as it was called. And uh, and this is uh, this is something we we've totally forgotten. But uh, many of the early aviators, including um, uh, Glenn Curtis and some of the early women aviators flew there. And the first a transcontinental airplane flight actually took off from about where Avenue X and Bedford Avenue is now uh, from the middle of this speedway. We had the first um, airplane flight across the country took off there. Who was the pilot or who was? Uh, 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 Galbraith Perry was his name. Um, and uh, he was kind of a faded individual because he, he made it across this, the country in this, in this, there was hardly a piece of the plane left that was original to the one he took off in. It had to be <laughs> rebuilt. He crashed about 30 times on on the way across. He didn't win the prize that he was going for. He was a month late, but he made it across. And uh, but unfortunately, he was killed uh, about a month or two later in another in another attempt to fly. Um and he's been long forgotten, but that that's um, that's that's one of the many stories that uh, really we've we've long forgotten, and it, it, that uh, has to do with um, Brooklyn. Does your book go into the Battle of Brooklyn? Yeah, I talk about the Battle of Brooklyn uh, not because it hasn't been discussed before. There are a number of stories about Brooklyn and aspects of Brooklyn's history that have been well treated um and i i don't spend much time on the brooklyn bridge for example i i don't spend uh, an enormous amount of time on telling retelling the story of coney island with the exception of this wonderful fraudulent attempt to build the tallest building in the world which is actually on the cover a drawing of it is on the cover of my book so so yes i do talk about the battle of brooklyn um it uh and and i and i specifically talk about it vis-a-vis -vis the the long search for the so-called Maryland Regiment, um, which I'm sure you know about. The Marylanders were this uh, regiment that, um, um, uh, by happenstance, were at the fiercest moment of, they were at the fiercest fighting. They got engaged in this firefight with the British, and a number of them were killed. The regiment was essentially wiped out. Um, and it's long been a Brooklyn um quest, I would say, more so in the past among antiquarians to try to find the burial ground of this lost regiment. Uh, and even until recent, even in just the last few years, um, people have uh, uh, come up with elaborate theories about, well, they must be buried here off Third Avenue or over here. And and uh, it's it's so I spent a lot of time on that story, essentially debunking it. Uh, it's It's very unlikely that this these men who had been shot at and killed over a long stretch of 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 Brooklyn in retreat would have been all gathered together in the heat of battle and buried in one place by the enemy who didn't give a damn what happened to their bodies, frankly. So it's it's uh, I do talk about that in in the context also of Greenwood Cemetery.
which is probably where most of them ended up being buried inadvertently because that ground, much of that ground became Greenwood Cemetery. Of course, it wasn't a Greenwood Cemetery back then. No. The, no. the tallest building, you know, I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about, so if you can this, give us this, that story. This, this is an interesting uh, story. The, the, um, um, it, it was the, uh, it was the uh, brainchild of this um, St. Louis-born uh, a man who was a very it was a, he was a real um he was an innovative individual an inventor entrepreneur uh had a lot of patents out for all sorts of different mechanical devices he tried to build this great aerial globe right it, 750 feet tall this enormous orb uh that uh, at the at the St. Louis World's Fair uh and uh it it, it didn't happen uh, so somehow he gets in touch with George C. Tillieu. I think they met, frankly, at the at the 1893 uh, World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Uh, and he, he tries to, he convinces Tillieu, George C. Tillieu being the founder of Steeplechase Park, to try to build this great aerial globe tower at Coney Island. And, and the site where it was to be built... Uh, is just about where the parking lot is of the um, the ball field uh, there, the the Marie, the um, the uh, minor league ball field that's at Steeplechase, and uh, he goes to the uh, to the lengths um, uh, to to he, he goes to such extremes here that he even actually buys the steel for this building, right? Begins sinking the footers in for the great pedestals for this structure. And it turns out it's all a pyramid scheme or I guess a a globe scheme, right? (laughs) And uh, he he basically convinces people to buy shares in this and uh, he gives them these wonderfully beautiful stock certificates. And and once he starts, and he takes some of the money and plows it in literally into the ground, putting these foundations in, which only convinces that many more people that this must be legitimate. Why would he be putting the foundations in? So more people invest in it. And it's a wonderful story. And it's all, there are times when it's not so clear that he was fraudulent about it. You almost get the sense that he really wanted to build this, but then falls back. In, and gets lured back into, you know, cheating the foe. He takes off for Europe and disappears. Tillieu blows the, the, the footers out of the ground with dynamite. Uh, and there's all sorts of wonderful legal battles that ensue. Who was Tillieu? I Some of us old-timers may remember yep. the name in the steeplechase, but today yep. I don't think too many... No, People George C. George C. Tillieu was was a, another brilliant impresario and entrepreneur. He he um his parents actually had a small seaside restaurant at at Coney Island very early on. This is in the 19th century, and uh, he grows up there and in in and in New York. I think he was actually born in Manhattan, but he grows up in in Coney Island, and he he develops um, really. The he begins he develops a a uh, an amusement park right, um, uh, but his real innovation is uh, creating um, a a a space where people had to go in and buy a ticket for the the entirety of his exhibit right of his of his amusements right and the original steeplechase burns quite early on I forget if it was 1908 or 1909 somewhere around there. And um, he rebuilds it, but this time builds it within a great 
shed, a great uh, glass and steel pavilion, which was called the Pavilion of Fun. And that uh, was uh, built around 1911 or so. And uh, the, the, that's his killer app, you know, to use current parlance, because it allowed him to operate in inclement weather. So when all the other operators, all the other, you know, there were three great theme parks. There was, there was Steeplechase was the first and, and, and the last. There was also Luna Park and Dreamland. They, if it was a rainy weekend, they were washed out, literally. Whereas Tilyu could still operate because everything, most of the rides were under this great uh, shed. Uh, I am quite sure, and I argue in my book, that he got that idea from the great uh, Globe Tower, um, uh, and uh, because that that the Globe Tower had been billed as this the world's first indoor amusement park, and of course he doesn't build it as a, as a globe; he builds it as a great flat pavilion. But um, but Tilyu uh, really was one of the great innovators in in the in the the world of amusement parks, and and uh, yeah, I have actually a, a family connection to to, to the Tilyus because my my great uncle um jimmy honorado was was his general manager was the general manager of of steeplechase park for many many years from like 1928 to till it closed in 1964 so a lot of my a lot of my um my uh, grand aunts and uncles and even my dad and my grandfather worked at at steeplechase park for during the summers or or even permanently uh, my uncle uh, rocco was the was the accountant uh, there, uh, Uncle Jimmy was the general manager. Why did Steeplechase Park go out of business? Uh, that's a complicated story. It 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 mirrored. Uh, it, it was a. It really was a result of larger changes that were buffeting New York City at the time. <clears throat> you had this is in the '60s. You had uh, suburbanization, right? You had Robert Moses had built all these these parkways during the. Uh, during the uh, well, during the Depression, and then in, after World War II, uh, you had uh, places like Levittown being built, uh, where people were, you know, could have a little bit of the American dream, uh, so-called, as far as a picket fence and and front lawn. Uh, so people were moving out of the city. Um, you also had um, <clears throat> the collapse of industry in in New York, so the jobs were leaving. Uh, there was a series of of, of uh, closures and endings uh, in the late fifties and into the sixties that really convinced people, like you know, my parents or my grandparents' generation, that that Brooklyn's best days were over. You had the the Brooklyn Eagle closes, right? Uh, the 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 Brooklyn Eagle shuts down the newspaper. So so for the first time since the eighteen thirties or eighteen forties, Brooklyn did not have its own. Uh, voice its own daily paper uh you had the brooklyn dodgers leave you have ebbets field torn down you have steeplechase close you have the navy yard close it was one after another right and the jobs were leaving uh downtown brooklyn what we now call dumbo and that whole area along the east river was one of the one of the workshops of of, of the united states there were, there were enormous industries there but in the post-World War II era, the nature of industry began changing. Uh, the, the, the needs, the, the factory floor needs began changing. These were very congested places that were very difficult to get to for motor trucks, for example. 
Um, the infrastructure was aging. The port facilities were aging. So a lot of these companies, uh, there were also other issues related to uh, very high taxes. I mean, we would never do this today, push these companies out of New York. <laughs> but back then, you know, we, we had a different mindset. So we, we, we taxed the hell out of these companies. And so they, you know, they, they uh, found other greener pastures to till. And, um, uh, and and there was also a lot of I, you know, I don't want to blame the unions here, but there was a lot of union uh, activity, a lot of union unrest, because what happened was during World War Two, the unions made a pact with the federal government, basically said, we're not going to strike. We're not going to pull any kind of actions, work stoppages for the duration of World War Two. Well, when the war ended, all bets, bets were off. And so you had a pile up of demands that. The unions, you know, were then active about. And so there was strike after strike after strike. It was the telecommunications workers, the beer, the brewery workers, the truckers. And and so, you know, the breweries were one of the first to go. I mean, Brooklyn had dozens of breweries. They were all gone by the 1970s. So you had this great exodus of industry, exodus of jobs. Um, you had changing demographics. You had the race riots. And so people are leaving. Um, and so they don't. And, and also Coney Island by then was becoming passe. Right. Um, the brave, the great new thing was Jones Beach. Right. Which Robert Moses had built in the late 20s. Uh, so so uh, uh, Coney Island generally starts plummeting. Right. Uh, and and um, and steeplechase is really one of the last holdouts. And when it closes in 1964, I think 64 was the last season. Um, that's really the end. All right. You know, you talk about different stories. We're running out of time. But can you give us one of your favorite Brooklyn stories? I, I, I grew up in Marine Park. Um, we've had the house that I grew up in for 53 years now. And Marine Park was like my backyard. And and sometimes, uh, I, I don't know, I grew up feeling that things that were close at hand uh, were not necessarily very historically important. I was very pleased to discover that it actually was one of the most layered, most historical places, um, in most historic places in, in Brooklyn. Uh, Marine Park itself was actually at one point uh, discussed as the uh, site for what later became Floyd Bennett Field, which was New York City's first municipal airport. It was discussed um, uh, briefly to be the site of a great permanent World's Fair in honor of George Washington in 1932, what eventually was realized as the 1939 World's Fair in Flushing, Queens. Uh, and then it, it was uh, it was actually going to be developed into the largest uh, urban park in the world. Um, there were these enormous plans uh, hatched in the 1930s for a very uh, formal uh, park with lots of programmed recreation and sports facilities. That never happened. And, and actually, it was Robert Moses who canceled those plans. We don't think of Robert Moses as a environmentalist, but he actually said, let it remain natural marshland. And I'll tell you, had it not, um, my house would have been among many thousands of houses flooded during Hurricane Sandy, um, because leaving it as natural wetland, when that storm surge came in, uh, the waters were held there and uh, detained long enough for the, uh, you know, for them back to retreat. Had it be been developed into this great park, 
uh, with all the hard space, hardscape, uh, we would have had flooding all the way up to probably Avenue R, maybe King's Highway. Hey, the name of the book, Brooklyn, The Once and Future City. The author, Thomas J. Campanella. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, in your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now I'm accompanied by my wife, Beth. Right, I'm here, I'm here. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Yeah, is, my, is Otto anywhere around? Otto is right here by me, and he's trying to be very polite. He's guarding the house today. Okay. So, um, we just... If he, if he says something, I don't want anyone to be offended. All right. Okay. But when we're talking during that interview, you know, off the air, Danny Thomas, I'm wondering how many people, obviously the older members of the audience, anybody probably well over 60 is going to remember Danny Thomas. But I think, Michael, do do you have any idea who Danny Thomas is? I mean, for someone my age, I'm pretty well versed in older entertainers, and I had to look him up myself. So I'm going to say it's not necessarily a household name, certainly not someone you put an image to immediately. Right. And I bet you even Marlo Thomas is not as well known. Do you know who Marlo Thomas was? The name is a little more familiar, but... Even so. Yeah, but she, as, she had her – she was very famous for a while. She had her own situation, comedy show or whatever. But Danny Thomas, you know, he did some films, not a lot, but I think most of them have been forgotten over the years. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem like a lot of Danny Thomas movies get shown today on Turner Classic Movies or whatever. No, I, I, I have to admit I don't remember that many movies. I remember him on television Yeah, because he had the television series. Right, and you know that the, the television series he had, it led to a lot of spinoffs, like the Andy Griffith show, which led to Gomer Pyle, which led to whatever, Mayberry RFD and whatever. Those were all Danny Thomas productions. He wasn't just an entertainment. He he was a very good, shrewd businessman. And, you know, and, and, and he had a funny show, and he had a way of telling ethnic 
humor. He could tell a, a, a joke about Italians or Jews or Irish or whatever. Now, what was his background? He was Lebanese. You know, so that's he was dead broke at one point. He pay, prayed to St. Jude to help him out. And he said if his prayers were answered, he'd start a, a shrine to St. Jude's. So that's what happened. And he never forgot. He never forgot his uh, his prayer. And he lived up to his obligations. And he ended up, you know, with St. Jude's, which I guess has saved thousands and thousands of young people's lives. Oh, my goodness. Those, those marvelous commercials with the children. Oh, it just brings tears to your eyes. You know, they're a wonderful, wonderful organization for many, many years. Yeah. So Danny Thomas, I mean, it, it, you know, if it wasn't for St. Jude's, I don't know if anybody would even remember who Danny Thomas was. And he was a great entertainer. He was a, one of the top people in, in Hollywood, top businessman, whatever else. But again, he left his lasting legacy to St. Jude's. And, and, and what a legacy. Right. And if you want to leave your exactly. legacy, come in and, and give us a, a talk at Connors and Sullivan. We're approaching the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) That's Otto saying Happy New Year. (laughs) Oh, good old Otto. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC.